Well, it was in seventh grade, and it was career week, and they asked us what we all wanted to do. And it was around that time I started really wrestling through the question of what does God have in store for me, for my life, and, and what, would I, what would I like to do with my life? And the more I prayed about it and the more I thought about it, I really felt like God was calling me uh, into ministry. So I, I wrote down on the form, Pastor, and then they put up in the hallway for everybody in the school to see what you wanted to do with your life. So for the rest of the school year, everybody called me Pastor, which was... Uh, which was great until it was time for yearbook time. And yearbooks, when you're in middle school, are just a special kind of torture. I mean, because it's, it's bad enough that photographers, they, they come in and they treat you like cattle, just snapping the pictures of everybody. And you're really at the most awkward phase of your entire life when you're in middle school. You're going through puberty and you've got the hormones and nobody looks good in middle school. Nobody looks good in their middle school picture. And so what, what better thing to do than to compile all those in a book and then sell them to people? And that's, uh, that's what they did. So I bought my yearbook and then everybody would like to write in people's yearbooks because at this time we didn't have cell phones. And so as the school year was wrapping up, you're like, I'll never see you again. Don't change. Have a great summer. We'll be BFFs forever. And people would write in the, write in the yearbooks all these different sayings to people. Well, it was time for us to get our yearbook, and I got my yearbook, and my mom would always like to go through the yearbook. She would like to go through and see how all the kids are growing or aging, and she would go through all of the different pages on the yearbook, but I also know my mom's a snooper, and I'm not naive enough to believe that my mom wasn't reading every single comment as well. She was, yes, looking at all the pictures, but she was going to read every single comment too, and I knew that, and where the problem was, was as I was passing this out, one of my friends in my yearbook wrote, uh, hey, pastor, see in hell. Just kidding. But those of us who are headed to hell are going to have a hell of a time. And I, I got that written in my yearbook, and I knew if my mom read that, she would be mortified, which meant I would have to hear the 30-minute speech all over again of choose wisely who your friends are, because who you surround yourself with will dictate the outcome of your life. And I was mom, they're just kidding. And I didn't want to go through that whole song and dance routine, so I just told her I lost it. And I just didn't bring it home for a while, and technically it wasn't a lie because it was in my locker somewhere at school, and if you've ever seen a middle school locker at school, you know everything in that locker is lost. So that's how I got around that. But it was really the first time in my life where I saw this mindset that hell is going to be a party, and the flip side to that line of thinking is that heaven, it's going to be great that you're there, but it's going to be pretty boring. And maybe that's something you've wrestled with. Maybe that's something you've thought through. When you think about heaven, you think about all the, all the things that, that have been presented, you think about your theology of heaven or your thought process of heaven, you're like, uh. I mean, heaven will be great, I'm sure, but uh, truth be told, you're a little worried. You're a little worried it's going to be rather boring. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some different portions of Scripture where God has peeled back the supernatural curtain, and He's given us a glimpse 
of what heaven's going to be like. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us this morning. We're going to be jumping all over the place. The first place we're going to stop is in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 6. If you're streaming from home, thank you so much for joining us. The verses will be available on the screen below. But this morning we start in Isaiah 6, verse 1, where we read these words. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is letting us know exactly when this vision that God gave him was, and it was in the year 739. We're not entirely sure. It was either 740 or 739. Historians debate which year it actually was, but right within one of those two years, either 740 years or 739 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah was given this supernatural scene. And the contrast of the scene could not be greater because Uzziah was a really good king. He was a really good king. Now, he wasn't perfect and he made some mistakes and along the way he experienced some of God's uh, punishment as a result of those mistakes. But for the people of his kingdom, Uzziah was a really good king. He reigned for 52 years and during that reign, the people prospered. It was a time of prosperity. It was a time of greater influence Uh, in the region, that they were becoming more and more powerful. It was a really important time for that kingdom, and it was a time where you wanted to be a person in that kingdom. Times were good. But like all world leaders, his time would come to an end. And it does when he dies. And Isaiah draws the contrast for us between a good king who served well whose kingdom is now over, who has died. And he contrasts that with a great king whose kingdom will never come to an end. The contrast could not be greater as he is comparing Uzziah and Jesus that he saw on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. God pulls back the curtain for Isaiah and gives him a glimpse of this supernatural vision. And then he continues, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with Smoke. Now, seraphim are angels, and they're one of the orders of angels, and they have six wings, as we're told here. They're using two to cover their face. They're using two to cover their feet. They're using two to hover. This is a freaky scene. This is a really freaky scene. This is not like the naked little baby angels and or covered in a diaper with a couple wings that you can buy at your local florist shop. For those of you who are around my age and you were raised on CBS Saturday night television with Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, and Walker, Texas Ranger, only to be followed, I believe, the next night with Touched by an Angel. This is nothing like those Touched by an Angel ladies, all right? That is not the scene we are seeing here at all. These things would freak you out. Out when you look at them, and here they are in God's presence, and even the angels in the presence of God are covering their face as they cry out of God's holiness. Holy, holy, 
holy. They are covering their feet, and they are flying around as they, as they scream out about the greatness of God. And let's just pause here and reflect on how great our God is. Let's just stop right here. And so often what happens is we think of all the great ways that God has worked. We think of all the great ways that God has, has worked in our lives and through our lives. Sometimes we think of how great grace is. But if we don't pause and if we don't reflect on how great our God is, that He is perfect and He is holy, when we pause and we reflect on that, it makes the grace that we experience from God that much greater. That a holy God who has angels in His his presence who have to cover their faces because this is how great God is and how holy God is that that great God and that holy God would look upon us as people who've made mistakes as people who've made a wreck out of our lives as people who've rebelled against him and yet that holy and good and perfect God would see us and still desire to have a relationship with us and would still love us to the point that he would redeem us it makes the grace that we've experienced all the more amazing. And the scene that we are given here shows us that the defining message that the angels proclaim about God is that He is holy and He is great. And the earth in this vision, vision shakes and the whole temple is filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, verse 5 tells us, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The response of Isaiah as he sees all this is, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. He sees what's going on, and he just says, I, I don't deserve it. I don't measure up. I don't deserve to be here. This is a restricted area, and, and I don't know why I'm here, but I don't deserve to be here. Because when he looked at the holiness and the perfection of God, he was immediately, immediately reminded of how he doesn't measure up. He was immediately reminded of his own imperfections. He was immediately reminded that God is that much greater. And as the angels are proclaiming the holiness of God, do you notice what happens as he says, God, I don't belong here. God, I don't measure up. Woe to me. I'm out of place. What does God have the angels who are declaring the holiness of God do? He has the angels who are declaring the holiness of God Come to Isaiah, who is unworthy, and make a path for him to become worthy. Not because of anything Isaiah had done, but because of what God provided for him. And thus it is with heaven that none of us measure up, and none of us are worthy, and none of us deserve to be there. But the same God who would provide a way for the prophet to continue to look upon this scene by having the angels bring him something would provide a way for all of us to experience heaven by sending his son. So now we fast forward to Revelation 
chapter 5. As we've just seen that in heaven the angels are proclaiming God's glory, now we fast forward to Revelation chapter 5, and John is in the middle of reporting that in the vision he's given in Revelation, that he is, he is seeing a scroll. And on the scroll is seven, are seven seals. As, a port, as important documents would be written in that society, they would be sealed. They would be sealed by a king or a dignitary. And only the recipient could break the seal. And if anybody other than the recipient, if a courier broke the seal, it would be the last document they opened because they would be dead. So as John's seeing this scene unfold, there is a scroll that is wrapped up with seven seals. And the audience of heaven's looking around and they're saying no one is worthy. No one is qualified to open up this scroll which has upon it seven seals until Jesus shows up. And that's where we pick up in Revelation 5, beginning in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This picture of this lamb who has been slaughtered is reminding us of the, of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what this picture is proclaiming. This picture is reminding us of the price that it takes for any of us to make it to heaven. Why? There is a penalty for sin, and that penalty is death. It's a physical death, which we will all experience. But God, in His love for us, sent His Son, Jesus, to pay the price for us so that we would not endure a spiritual death, which is eternity apart from God. And so the, the picture that we're being given here of the slaughtered lamb is to remind us of what our redemption costs. It is to remind us of what our Savior went through, that he was slaughtered so that you and I wouldn't have to be, to pay the price for our sin. And when it talks here about the seven horns and the seven eyes and the seven spirits of God, this is a picture to remind us that God is all-powerful, that He knows everything, and that God is everywhere. This is a fascinating picture. Now, I understand it's, it's, it's got some different imagery, and it's, it's really hard to comprehend, but that's the picture that's being drawn for us here in what's going on in Revelation chapter 5. And then we go on and we read this in verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's happening in this scene, right as we're being reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus, and right as we're being reminded of the greatness of God, that He is everywhere and He knows everything, what happens is the audience worships. They pull out harps. Now, if it were me, if I were God, and I'm not, if I were God and people are talking about my glory and they're reflecting on my victory, I'm thinking probably some electric guitar, some bass, some big drum beat, but that's just me. God's choosing 
harps. And they're playing harps and they're singing songs. And I would just put forth to us Lakeside that if Derek really loved us and he really wanted to give us a preview of heaven, he would learn the harp. He hasn't chosen to do that. I don't know why. But if you would join me in encouraging him to do so, maybe we could have a preview of heaven on here someday. But the scene we're given, the scene we're given is that these musicians are playing harps and they are singing about God. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. Number myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And now we go from just this intimate scene of a select group to now we see unnumberable amounts of people and angels crying out and singing together of how great and how good God is. Think of all the pictures you've seen of, of Woodstock or maybe you were there or Lollapalooza or whatever music festival you can think of and that just immense mass of humanity that there's people as far as the eye can see all joined together. There's just something about what happens when people come together and they sing together. It moves people and it makes a difference. It's just a feeling that you can't get like that anywhere else. And here the picture that we're given in Revelation 5 is of all these angels which are too numerous to number and all these people which are too numerous to number they are united together they are unified and they are singing a song of worship to our God shoulder to shoulder and elbow to elbow and they are crying out in just this mass scene too great for us to count it's an incredible picture and now we fast forward to Revelation chapter 7, uh, starting verse 9, where we read these words. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, we are given this picture of uncountable numbers of people singing. And do you notice what it says? Do you notice what it says about these people who are singing? Every nation, all tribes, every language. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is no room for racism in your life. There's absolutely no room whatsoever for racism to be a part of your life. It doesn't work because as a follower of Jesus, we need to have the same heart of Jesus. And here we're given a glimpse of the heart of Jesus, that salvation doesn't belong to one nation. Salvation doesn't belong to one race. Salvation doesn't belong to one language. No, the picture that we're seeing reveals to us the heart of God and that heart of God is that everyone would make the decision to follow him, which means people of every race and every nation and every language. So as people who follow Jesus, we need to love people of every race and every nation and every language. And anything contrary to that is incompatible with the person and the heart of God. And as people who follow Jesus, we need to make sure that we aren't harboring feelings or bitterness or anything in our lives that doesn't 
that doesn't line up with the heart of God. I'm telling you, as followers of Jesus, there is no room whatsoever for racism. God loves people of every race, of every nation, and of every language, and we must as well. Well, Let's think about this for a minute. Every race, every nation, every language. I mean, just think of what what's happened in our own society over the last seven years, 70 years. We've gone from Elvis to the Beatles to the Rolling Stones slash disco to Bon Jovi to Nirvana to whatever we've had for the last 20 years. That, I mean, that's, and that's just the last 70 years of our society. Imagine what's going to happen when people from every race and every language and every nation are worshiping God. Some of you are going to have to adjust your musical tastes a little bit. I mean, because very, I, I don't know of anybody who can, who can go from the spectrum from polka to rap and be like, yeah, I love them all. I love them all. So you're going to be open to some stuff in heaven that probably not going to be your favorite. But the reality is, if every nation and all people and every language is there, there's going to be some new music for all of us. And here they are singing together, uncountable numbers. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Heaven is a community of people worshiping together. A number of years ago, I went to a baseball game because I love baseball and I love to, love to go to games. And at the end of the ninth inning, it was a tie game, which meant more baseball. And when you're a baseball fan, that's great. I mean, some people feel about baseball the way my mom does. It's like one inning's too long. She thinks it's the most boring sport ever invented and doesn't understand why anybody likes it. But I, I love baseball. And at this game, when the nine innings were over, the game was tied. When the 10th inning was over, the game was tied. When the 11th inning was over, the game was tied. When the 12th and the 13th and the 14th innings were over, the game was still tied. When the 16th inning was over, there were about 500 of us left in a stadium that at the time seated 42,000 people. I love baseball, but after 16 innings, I was ready to go. That game would go on to last 18 innings. Here's the deal. You may be the biggest music fan ever. You may love everything about music. But an eternal worship concert? Is that really what we're signing up for in heaven? Because some of us have been there, right? On Wednesday night church during the 32nd verse of Just As I Am because nobody's coming down front to join the church or pray with the pastor and they're just going to keep that organ going and keep singing Just As I Am until somebody does and everybody's looking around. They're like, not me. I went down three weeks ago. It's your turn. And you're just standing there like, could we please go home? I am starving. I haven't eaten for two hours. Take me home, please. Some of you have been to what feels like an eternal worship concert. And you're like, oh, heaven's going to be like that. We're in trouble. 
And honestly, for, for a period of time in my life, I thought, I mean, I'm sure heaven's going to be great, but I'm just going to get tired of singing. I mean, enough is enough. How much can we handle? And then I saw it. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven. And he gives a couple parables. And we're going to look at one today in Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. We read this, for the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. So in the story that Jesus gives in this parable, the master gives each of his servants money. To one he gives five talents, to one he gives two talents, and to another he gives one talent. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So we look at this, and our takeaways are, well, the five talents went and made five more, and our society were like, yeah, capitalism, that's right, that's the best thing we could see here, way to go. And then the next person, he had two talents, and he went out and he made two talents more. And we're like, that's just a great business model. But then we get to the one talent person, and they just hit it. Hit it in the ground. Didn't make anything more. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Now remember, this is a story that Jesus is telling about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is fascinating to me, that the, when we're talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like, we're, we're not given the response of Jesus that when he saw the person, he gave five talents, the master gave five talents to in the story, and he made five more. The response of Jesus was not, well done, good and faithful servant. You get a front row at the eternal worship concert. That's not what he said. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. I will set you over much. The same principles applied to the person who made two talents and turned that into four. 
that Jesus in this, in this story of what heaven is like is saying, I'm going to give you more responsibilities. Which means that we will have jobs and we will have work. We will have responsibilities in heaven. That heaven is not just an eternal worship concert, but we will actually have jobs to do and we will work in heaven. Now, if you hate your job right now, you're thinking, wonderful, great, I get to die and go to work for all eternity. Can't wait. This is great. And you're really depressed right now if you hate music, too. I mean, you're starting to, you're starting to question just about everything. But just wait a minute. Just wait a minute. If you've been fortunate enough in your life, if you've been fortunate enough in your life to do a job you really love, then you understand the level of joy and fulfillment that comes from work. Understand, work is not a result of sin. We go back all the way to the garden with Adam and Eve, and what we see is God, introduces, God introduces the concept of work before sin comes into the equation, which means we do not have jobs because of sin, but instead that God designed us to work, that we are people created to fulfill a purpose. And if you've been privileged enough to find a job you love, you know there's not much better than getting up and going to work. And the things that do frustrate you about work, even if it is a job you love, think of how amazing your job would be without the idiot coworker that you have. I mean, he just messes everything up. Uh, think about, I was just looking over there, all right? Think about, think about what work's going to be like without sin. Without sin. Imagine being a farmer or a gardener without weeds, without drought, without flood. Think of the joy that that would produce and the crop that would be yielded. Think about all of these things when we remove sin and all the effects out of the equation. Work will be a great joy. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I'm like, yeah, but you know, I really love sports, and golf's sure going to be a lot of fun in heaven where everybody hits a hole-in-one every time. Woohoo! Shot 18 on the round. What'd you shoot? 18. Great. That's, I mean, right? That's going to get... I mean, I don't know how to make golf that much more boring, but that would do it when everybody's, when everybody's hitting the perfect shot. But why do you think that? Why do you think that? We won't all have the same abilities in heaven. Did you catch that? In the story that Jesus told about what the kingdom of heaven is like, at the end, we see somebody who has ten talents and somebody else with four talents. So sports and art and business, you name it, isn't going to be boring. It's still going to be fascinating and exciting. It's just we've removed sin and all its effects from the equation. That we will worship in heaven, yes, we will. And it will be phenomenal. It will be majestic. It will be amazing to worship our great God in all of His holiness. But we will also function in other ways. And we will also do other things in a world and in a way that this world was originally designed that gone is sin, and gone is the curse. 
all of the frustration that we experience is now taken out of the equation. And sometimes we can't even wrap our minds around that. We can't even really think about it. Because when we think about all of the great shows and movies and plays that we really love to, love to watch, we're like, well, they all pretty much center around sin of some kind. I mean, you can't have Matlock with no murder, so how's that going to work, right? So we get this idea that maybe, that maybe heaven is going to be boring, but nothing could be further from the truth. But as we saw back with Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, who was a really good king for his people, but we're contrasted that with a great king whose kingdom will never end in Jesus, that the angels fly around him and they cover their faces at the holiness and the perfection of God. And we're reminded that, yes, none of us measure up, but that holy, perfect God still loves us. He loves us so much that He sent His Son to be sacrificed on our behalf so that we could join God in this holy and perfect place, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And we will worship Him, we will thank Him, we will rejoice with Him over the gift of our salvation. And we will sing. We will sing songs with numbers too many to count. We will join with the angels and cry out about the greatness of our God with too many to count. It will be a scene like we cannot even imagine. But we will have responsibilities. And we will have jobs. And we will work. And we will experience joy and fulfillment as we serve our great God. So what do we do with all of this? Well, let's make sure that we're looking forward to the hope of heaven. And let's make sure that we allow this hope to infiltrate our lives. That we use what's left of the time we have remaining here to encourage others and to point others to this amazing hope that we have and what Jesus has done for us. And that all of our days, we wake up looking forward to this hope of eternity. And we allow it to change how we approach every single day. Knowing that this world, it isn't our home. But the home God has for us will be amazing as we will worship him and we will work without the frustrations we've come to know. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the hope that you offer us. That a holy, perfect God sees us when we have nothing to offer you, sees us in our sin and our rebellion in the midst of our mistakes and loves us in it. God, I pray that just as Isaiah saw your glory, we would just be reminded of how great you are. And Lord, when we pause and reflect on your greatness and your holiness, we can't help but be reminded that we desperately need you.
And so we thank you for sending your son to make a way for us to experience hope. Not because of anything we have done in and of ourselves, but because of who you are and because of what you have done for us. Jesus, I pray that we would look forward to heaven with hope and enthusiasm and excitement. I pray that we would look at our own lives and we would ask the question if somehow this idea that heaven's going to be boring or less than exciting has crept in. And if it has, God, I just pray that you'd help us weed it out. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us gifts. May we, as a reflection of all that you've done for us, love others well and serve them. May we see each day that we have here as an opportunity to leave a lasting legacy on eternity. God, help us make the most of our time and use us for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.